All right, everybody, welcome to another episode of the Area 51 Hockey Podcast. We're very honored to be joined now with uh, TSN senior correspondent, Rick Westhead. Rick, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine. Thanks for having me on, guys. Oh, it's a privilege. Uh, we're very excited to have you on. and I know right now it seems more timely than ever to, to have somebody like yourself on, on the show to speak on some of the things that are happening right now in the sports world and the world in general. Um, we're kind of at this weird, unprecedented period where there's not a lot of, well, there's no sports happening right now, but it's allowed us to kind of dig deeper behind uh, just the game itself and what's happening on the ice, on the field, on the court. And now we're kind of getting to know the players in a different level. And um, I mean, things like the Daniel Carcillo court case, or case filing has brought new light as well. And, and people are being more and more encouraged to stand up and speak out about different things that are happening behind the scenes. Uh, and you've been a huge, uh, huge part of giving those players that platform and that ability to, to share their stories. One of the things that I've, I've been curious and I've been wanting to ask you about is kind of the headspace on how you approach a story like that. Uh, well, I guess, you know, a, a lot of this is, is it's just like all, all parts of life, whether you're a lawyer or you work in banking or in journalism, relationships are super important. And so, you know, I've really spent a lot of time through the years building up relationships not a million of them in hockey or in basketball or in baseball, but some really good, solid relationships with people I trust who I can run stories past and ideas and who will share with me, you know, when they um, have heard about things. So as an example, a few years ago, I did a story about an NHL player named Matt Johnson. And I had been told that Matt Johnson was living in California and that he was homeless. And that's all I had to go on. I'd never met him before. I'd never covered the Minnesota Wild. I had no idea about this guy. So um, found out that he was from Southern Ontario and you know, through a network of people managed to get an address for his parents and showed up on their doorstep and basically introduced myself, said, I will totally understand if you want to you know, keep your privacy and you don't wanna talk about what's happened with your son and with your family but I think there's a real public good that could come from talking about this. And they said, why don't you just come on in and sit at the kitchen table? And away we went. And we started talking about Matt Johnson's story. And, you know, it, over the years, it sounds all too familiar. Hockey players coming up and wanting more than anything to play in the National Hockey League and getting there and having to use painkillers to stay in the game and you know because they're afraid that if they miss time with injuries they'll lose their position with their teams and over the course of time the that has a real effect on someone and you know matt the one thing about his story in particular that will i'll never forget was his dad talking about how you know after matt's career finished he struggled in rehab they they put him in a good program and you know, he finished it, he brought, came back to, to their family home, but he was never quite the same. And at one point, 
Matt's father told me that he woke up in the middle of the night and just imagine like Matt Johnson was an enforcer when he played in the NHL, big strapping guy. And his father told me that he woke up in the middle of the night one night and Matt was standing at the end of his bed, just staring at him and his mom while they were sleeping. And it was so upsetting that the parents put a lock on their bedroom door. And, you know, now Matt is, you know, in California and uh, hoping to recover. I, I know that he's getting help, but his story is important. And it's important because we can wrap ourselves up in this game, which is great to play and fun. And we come to see hockey as this tie that binds, right? It's part of our social fabric as a country. And we love the Tim Hortons commercials where a new Canadian arrives and the way he finds a sense of community or she finds a sense of community is through the hockey rink and getting their kids in the program. And there's so many things about the sport that we can love rightfully, but it's important not to turn a blind eye to what the reality is for many of these players who make it to the NHL. And it's not like there's only one story like this. There's many stories like this. The problem is they make us uncomfortable. They're hard to find. They're hard to gain the trust of families and former players. And they don't make people feel as good hearing them. It's much, you know, it's much more fun to talk about the Sedin brothers and the long lasting impact they're going to have on Vancouver and what a great career they had. Right. But sometimes it's okay to, to lean into the uncomfortableness because it's important to. I think that's such a powerful point, Rick. And one of the things I wanted to ask, because you've covered some of the biggest issues in hockey that are the uncomfortable topics. Like you are, I think, the leading, I would say, leading journalist on CTE and, and the NHL and hockey in general. Um, you've also done the Finding Murph piece, which, you know, there are a lot of similarities to the Matt Johnson story. Um, more recently, you've covered the GTHL racial discrimination issues. Um, taking a step back kind of to when you started your career, how did you get into this area and how did this become, how did you become such a great storyteller for these kinds of issues? Well, that, that's very flattering for you to say, thank you. Um, I get, I've had a lot of really good editors who've taught me little tips and tricks along the way, you know, how to ask open-ended questions, try to avoid asking yes or no questions and just let people tell the story. Never be afraid to say that you don't understand something. You know, often you're talking to somebody, you're going to get a better answer. The second, you know, what do you mean by that? Explain it to me like, um, you know, uh, somebody who's not as informed on this subject. But, um, you know, the way I got into this is uh, kind of by accident. Uh, I went to journalism school in Toronto at Ryerson. And for years in a row, I could not get a summer internship anywhere. The Toronto Star, I couldn't get an interview with them. And on a lark, I actually emailed my resume to the sports editor at the New York Times. And one day I got a phone call, his name's Neil Amder, and I got a phone call from Neil and asking if I could leave the next morning from Toronto and go to Ottawa because the New Jersey Devils beat reporter was not able to make it up there to cover a game and they wanted me to go. I wasn't even sure if this was Neil Amder. This is probably back before the time of call display. So I was almost about to hang up on him thinking it was a friend playing a prank and it wasn't. And I wound up 
you know, working and for the times and writing more for them and, you know, doing kind of game coverage of the NHL and major league baseball. Like when the Yankees or the Mets came through Toronto, um, I would help out or through Detroit, uh, covered a little bit of college football, a little bit of NFL, uh, and found just quirky stories. You know, what, why is it that Canadian quarterbacks have such a hard time making it in the Canadian football league? Or, um, you know, it's a few features on Roger Clemens who had just come to Toronto, the Raptors, you know, were, uh, very topical. So I started just doing more features for, for the times and, uh, then that led me to a job at Bloomberg News, and I learned a little bit about covering sports business and met a completely different group of people, and uh, then decided that I wanted, didn't want to do sports at all. So in 2003, the Toronto Star hired me, and I remember interviewing for the Star. Remember, I couldn't get an internship or even an interview for four years in a row, and joked with them that it was going to be a lot more expensive to hire me than if they had hired me originally. And within a year, I had my first job as a, as a foreign correspondent with the paper, covering a coup in, in Haiti. And uh, yeah, I guess it was about six, five or six years I was at the Star before they sent me to India to be a full-time foreign correspondent. And I lived there for about, you know, several years and uh, um, covered Afghanistan and Pakistan and India, Sri Lanka, all these different amazing stories. I remember in Pakistan meeting Malala Yousafzai when she was still, you know, a 16 year old in school uh, and trying to, trying to understand kind of what her path was going to be. Um, this was before, obviously long before she was shot by the Taliban and uh, had become a kind of a world known figure. Um, and also interviewed people joining the Taliban and Al Qaeda and trying to understand why, why, what would drive someone to do something like this. And I remember being in the city of Faisalabad in Pakistan once and doing a story on this and, and interviewing this guy in this little dingy tea shop, trying to get this through, like trying to comprehend, like, what's it like to be in your shoes? Why at 18 years old would you be leaving your home? and wanting to join a group like the Taliban or Al-Qaeda. And he explained to me, he had like 11 siblings and he'd come to Faisalabad and he couldn't get a job in any of the loom industries or textile factories because none of them were operating because there wasn't power in the city. But on the street corner was a guy handing out flyers saying, this is what we pay for fighters. And that's why he was joining. So this wasn't a case where he was doing it out of like religious conviction or anything like that, he was looking for a job. And this was the only job that he could find. And uh, so I did that, you know, for the star and wound up in all kinds of different countries and meeting people. And then one day in 2014, TSN called and said, how do you think about getting back into television, uh, getting back into sports and we'll teach you television. And I was really nervous and took a lot of convincing. And that, recruitment took nine months before I finally said yes. And then I guess the rest is kind of history. So what was the thing that brought you back to sports? Like what was the kind of the, the ultimate pitch at the end that convinced you? You know, I think it was because I was in my early forties 
and I wanted to learn something new. I've been doing newspaper reporting for a long time and I learned how to do all kinds of different writing styles and, and, and I'd never done television. So I think the opportunity to come over and do and learn how to write a completely different way, learn how to write television scripts, which is so different than TV stories, or sorry, so different than newspaper stories. And, uh, and just work with a new group of people. It was just, it was a challenge. And I thought, you know, if it doesn't work out, I'll go back to the star or the globe or something like that. And it's been amazing because it's opened up doors for me at CTV national news and with W five. And these are the best people in the country at what they do. So I'm learning, you know, over the last months, even the silver lining for me has been reporting on COVID with CTV national and they're working with their producers and their directors of photography and plotting ideas for stories for W5 for next season. You know, I've already got a half dozen that I'm in different, um, you know, starting on and kind of have made different levels of progression with each one. And then with TSN working on feature stories, we have this brand TSN originals, which we built up into something I think that's really special and unique in the Canadian media space. And uh, also just looking for ways to contribute to our daily coverage on SportsCenter. So that's a pretty full plate. That's huge. <laughs> yeah. Um, one of the, one of our um, listeners, Grady, um, actually he was on a few weeks ago, uh, works for Bar Down, and he told us that we had to ask you about the Durbano project. Well, I mean, the, what was great about Steve Durbano has a great story, um, you know, in terms of compelling. It didn't work out well for him. He became one of the, the sort of a tortured soul. And, but what was great about it was the chance to work with the Bar Down team. Um, you know, Emily Hanscamp and Takia Singh, like working with people who are a different generation than I am as well, was an eye opener. You know, they were, I, I'd never done a podcast before. I barely had listened to podcasts before. So, you know, I remember some, Dave Cricks, who leads that bar down team saying, have you heard S-Town before? And I was like, what's S-Town? Well, he was like, well, it's one of the most popular podcasts that's ever been made. And I really hadn't listened to a podcast before. So it was really, it was amazing. Like just working with them on a story that was hard because Steve Durbano played hockey in the 1970s and it was hard to find his teammates. It was hard to find his family and his father and, you know, we wound up flying down to Florida to interview Steve's father, trying to understand why, again, here's the question, why? Why did Steve make all of these crazy choices in life? Why was he so reckless and dangerous on the ice? And, uh, you know, I don't want to give it away in case there's people who might be interested, but, you know, we found some things about his past that may help explain the person that he became. That was pretty cool. Any plans for doing another podcast? Do you have any ideas? <laughs> it's, you know, it's one so. of the other things, you know, one of the things that strikes me with a podcast is how much time it does take. And it's extremely time intensive to do it properly. So, yeah. you know, again, that group, Sam Glisserman, as well as another guy who just poured his heart and soul into that podcast and trying to find the old news clips and sound ups and game footage and, you know, it's, it's a, it's a real major undertaking to do. And, uh, and like I said, that, that bar down team, they, 
you know, we shot for the moon and we exceeded it, I think, with that project. So we don't have anything else in the works. We've kicked around a couple ideas, but you know, well, I think I think it, we like to do something that's a little has a little more relevancy for today instead of a story, you know, from the 1970s. So, like I said, we're always open for ideas. Hey, if we have any, we'll shoot you. So. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, we were, I mean, talking about podcasts, you mentioned earlier that you haven't, we're kind of one of the first ones you've said yes to, which we're super honored by. And so um, anytime you want to come back on, if you sure. want to do this podcast, um, jumping into kind of one of your big areas that you've written about, um, and that's CTE. How did you, how did you get onto that topic? And then one of the things that I've always found really impressive about your writing, sort of throw multiple questions at you, but you talk to so many lawyers and doctors and people who are, you know, pretty specialized in their fields and you manage to translate what they say into stories that we can all understand. How do you, how do you manage to do that? Uh, well, thank you. Um, you know, CTE is, uh, man, I, it, I guess the reason, see, the, the CTE coverage has come at a real cost. Uh, and what I mean by that is the more that you report on the National Hockey League on an issue like this, the more you'll become blacklisted. And that's totally happened to me. You know, the NHL won't return my emails, any of them. And so... You know, and again, if I had been incorrect in any of my reporting, you can believe that this league would have contacted TSN and CTV and made a complaint. We have done fair and balanced reporting. You know, we've done our jobs. We have uh, filed. We have filed for status with the court when that lawsuit was going on, the concussion lawsuit in the NHL. The NHL was trying to keep a number of documents and correspondence hidden from the public. We made the argument that it was in the public interest to see. And what those documents show, the story that they tell, is that the NHL is in the business of, you know, using players to make money. And uh, often when it has the opportunity to invest in research, so that it has a better grasp on what the long-term consequences are of these repeated brain injuries. The NHL has said, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to invest. And, you know, some people would say, yeah, but Rick, that was in the eighties and nineties and our system is so much better now. You know, the NHL has made so many moves in the right direction and is so progressive in this. So let's assume for a second that that's true. You guys are both in Vancouver. Who, who are the concussion spotters who attend Vancouver Canucks games? I have no idea. I don't know. How? How is that possible? If, if the NHL is transparent, wouldn't we know? who? These are the people who are in charge of deciding whether in the waning moments of a game, when a player gets up off the ice and is holding their head or is having a hard time being, staying balanced, that's a very big decision and responsibility they have. We know, and if you pick up an NHL media guide, we know every, who everyone is. We know who the teams are, the trainers are, massage therapists, sports psychologists, every coach you can imagine. 
the league and the teams are transparent about this. So you guys tell me, why would the NHL not want this information public? Probably because they're not qualified to be the spotters. <laughs> I mean, it's a question worth asking. And yeah. it, I often wonder why that question is not asked more. You know, what is the NHL doing to fund research? We've heard, well, the league can't do that because it's facing a lawsuit. Well, first of all, that's not true. If you have employees who, and you see that some of them are having repeated brain injuries, don't you have a responsibility to them, whether there's a lawsuit ongoing or not? And now the lawsuit's done, you've settled it. You know, there's a few with Dan Carcello, like you mentioned, and Nick Boynton, but for the vast majority, this case is over. So wouldn't the right thing to do be to say, we're going to study our retired players and see where they're at with their mental health. Wouldn't that be a good first step? That'd be an enormous step and one that should, should definitely happen. I know like for me, uh, I've been trying to educate myself more and more on the CTE uh, subject through your writing. Um, Ken Dryden put out a book called Game Change um, following along the lawsuit that happened and Nick Boynton's and Daniel Carcillo's as well. And it's remarkable how much or how little information is out there for, uh, to be able to learn about how sports and in particular hockey handles concussions um, and how little it seems to be that we understand what CTE really is and the long-term effects of it we're just starting to scratch the surface of it. And you, we kind of know a little bit about how to dampen it or to mildly protect against it or to start to recognize it. Um, but as far as actual research into progressive steps to rectify anything or to protect players, it seems to be uh, just not there from what I've been able to find anyways. Yeah, I mean, it, and it's one of these, the number of times I've sat in a player's home and his wife or his soon-to-be ex-wife or his parents have said to me that they just feel totally abandoned. This is, again, that's, that's why I do what I do. It's to give people a voice. And it's not easy to have to work around the NHL and to not have a relationship with them. But ultimately, that's the, that's the price of this. If you want to do this kind of reporting consistently and really hold them to account, because again, this is a $5 billion industry. They have the money to do the right thing. Yeah. Um, you know, that's, I, I, I think it's important to do that. And, uh, you know, they're, there are other reporters, obviously, you know, like John Branch, who did the a book, um, A Boy on Ice, the, their Bugard story. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you mentioned Ken Dryden, and there's certainly other reporters like Ken Belson at the New York Times and, um, you know, ESPN writers who cover this subject very well. This is, this is beyond hockey. This is a contact sports issue. Um, and it's beyond sports. It's an issue with with you know our veterans as well with military personnel and and anyone who gets concussions um so i just think it's 
it's a natural we should try to understand the subject more. I always thought one of the most telling things was that, you know, for the league to really not address the issue back in 2011, 2012, 2013, when Sidney Crosby was out for almost a full year with serious concussion issues. That's like, that's the face of your league. And they basically just ignored it. They just never talked about it. And it's only, I think, been in recent years that Crosby's kind of come out more with his story to the athletic to talk about how that impacted him and all the different specialists he had to see on his own. How much responsibility do you guys think the media has in that? You know, I mean, it's, it's not brain surgery to learn how to cover this better. It's, it's, you know, you pick up the phone and you call experts, almost all of whom are happy to talk to reporters who can, you know, you ask them, what are the questions I should be asking the NHL and the NFL? What could they be doing better? Um, you know, that's not, it's not overly complicated. I wish that the field was far more crowded in terms of people's interest in reporting on this. Um, like I said, there are some who, who cover this issue. I think there should be more. One of the things that before we started recording, we were talking a little bit and I it kind of, it's resonated with me since is, is how you go about reporting on, on this subject because it is uncomfortable and it is difficult, I think, for many people to, to talk about or write about. And perhaps that's one of the big reasons why it is so avoided or um, uncovered. And that was that you find somebody to be able to share their story instead of trying to tackle a full subject, like trying to write an article on CTE, which is so huge. And to try to find one particular story to, to be able to show the human side of it and why that is impactful and why CTE has had an impact on that person in their life. Um, what kind of brought you to, to take that approach uh, for, because I think it is so powerful that you've, you've done just that. Well, so I just talked about how I'd love to see more media cover this, but now I'll answer the question of why they don't. Uh, this takes a long time and it's hard. And, you know, we are living in an age now when fewer people are subscribing to newspapers and newsrooms are smaller than they've ever been. And so you've got reporters who are expected to file multiple stories a day. Building up a relationship with somebody who feels broken and, you know, wants to tell their story, but isn't sure if it's the right time or how they're going to do it or should they trust you. Uh, you know, the other day I did a story on a hockey player named Brad Hammett who played in the Canadian Hockey League in the WHL and was, uh, says he that he was sexually and physically abused when he played. And he played in the 1980s, but he'd never, he's been married for 24 years and Brad had not told his wife or two children about the abuse that he says he suffered until Saturday uh, last week. And so, you know, it takes, it, 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 it's very delicate. You're talking to people, um, sometimes, you know, somebody will come out of the woodwork like Brad and just say, Rick, I want to talk to you about this. And there's other cases where I've spent months and months and months and months getting to know someone and hearing their story. 
and have them right at the end say, I'm not ready. And so, you know, what do you say? I'm, my answer to that is, I understand. And this is your story to tell. And you will decide when you're ready to do it. And you'll get no pressure from me, only support. So, yeah, you know, I mean, people have to be ready. Uh, and people have to understand the the, you know, what they're getting into with the media. Um, people who haven't worked with reporters before, you know, the whole phrase off the record, what does that really mean? So it's our responsibility as reporters, if we're working on a story to tell someone's story and they've never dealt with a reporter before, it's our responsibility to explain to them how this is going to work and, and, you know, go through that system of, checks and balances and how we're going to try to verify and how we need to corroborate what they're saying. And, you know, cause I've had other people who, you know, for instance, with Brad, Brad has shared with me who his alleged abusers are in several of them work on the hockey world still. And I have to explain, this is the process we go through. You know, um, we have to, we have to corroborate before we would report something like this. We, it's, we need to wait until people's names are in legal documents so that we as reporters enjoy something called privilege. That's a term, you know, in our legal system where if there's information in a court filing uh, and we report it, we're protected from legal exposure because of that term privilege. So a lot of it's just explaining to people too, kind of, you know, holding their hand and walking through this and letting them know that you're not in this for a story you're in this because it's the right thing to do and you want to help them. And, and that's, my, that's been my approach anyway. This relates to that. something that's, um, that we talked about with um, Dr. Courtney Cito from Queens university if, a couple of episodes ago where she does a lot of work on anti-racism in hockey. And she suggested one of the things that needs to happen to change kind of the insular hockey culture and the conformity and the, you know, shield first mentality is she thinks there has to be a shift in the way beat reporters and kind of the media covers hockey on the day-to-day -day in general. And she said, you know, there's an impetus on media to ask about anti-racism issues and to kind of open the doors to those topics to be talked about. Um, and that's obviously something you've always covered, but for how do you see the role of media in kind of the issues that have now come to the surface going forward? Well, I think the media has to change. Um, you know, the days of covering games and doing game stories, that was, those days were doomed long before, um, you know, this whole, this issue, this important issue. Um, and uh, you know, it's not a black and white issue or black or white issue. It's a human rights issue, right? That we all need to pay attention to and be invested in. And sports is, you know, often sports is kind of a, a way to get into a societal issue, whether it's, you know, drug abuse, whether it's steroids, whether it's gambling, you know, whatever the, you know, the broader issue, sports is a way that often that I try to just get into the, telling those stories. And this issue, human rights, um, is something that, yeah, absolutely, sports reporters should be asking about. Um, you know, I'd love to know what Terrence Davis, the Toronto Raptors player, feels about 
the state flag in his home state, uh, you know, Mississippi, where they have the Confederate emblem, Confederate flag emblem as part of the state flag. Now, Mrs. They're, they're planning to make a change to that. Uh, and the governor has said that he will sign off on, on a change. But before that decision was made within the last couple of days, I would have loved to get to him. I know he's down in Florida with the Raptors right now and talk to him about that. Like, what was it like growing up in the state and seeing this emblem of slavery and, and hatred as part of your state flag? How does that make you feel? Uh, I, I would have loved to know the answer to that question from him. Um, you know, but there's still a million other things for us to cover. And, and, and we've talked a little bit about, uh, you know, you, Sam, you mentioned the reporting on hockey that I've done with the Greater Toronto Hockey League. Here you've got, it's an amateur and minor hockey league, yes, but it's the biggest in the world. 40,000 players, $10 million a year in revenue that league brings in. And, um, you know, even before the death of George Floyd, I remember trying to reach out to Evander Kane and a few other players and say, I really want to do a story. I want to do an interview on race in sports and racial intolerance. And uh, I found a player named Miles Douglas, who's 16 years old, and he plays in the GTHL. He's a AAA player. And Miles told me that in more than half of the 45 games that he played this season, he was called the N-word by players that he played against. This is in Toronto. And so, you know, I had had this perception of Canada as being a place that was so much different than the United States. And when we travel, well, you know, I'm Canadian. We all get along here. We don't have the issues that we have in the United States. Obviously, I was looking at this through white privilege, and I needed to do a better job of listening. And I've been trying to talk to players professionally in the NHL, minor professional leagues, and other players even younger than Miles to try to understand their experience and find ways like that I can use my platform to give them a voice if they want it. And so, you know, what that led to with the GTHL, just to finish the, the thought, the league surprisingly refused to give any information about how many players were penalized uh, in recent years for racial slurs. And so we, I just started asking NHL players, current and former, how they felt about that. And eventually the pressure got to the point where the GTHL relented and gave the information over. At, at first, the GTHL was completely ridiculous. At first they said, well, we can't give you that information because uh, it's on our computers at work. And because of COVID-19, we're not in a position to give that to you. And then they said that they follow the example <laughs> of school. Then they said they, give, they follow the example of school boards. And, you know, these are minors. So their privacy is of paramount importance. Well, you know, there, it had nothing to do with the privacy of any player. We weren't looking to ruin anyone's life. We weren't looking for the names of people who had been accused. All we were looking for were numbers. And uh, now, and now, like my reporting on the GTHL continues. I'll be doing another story on minor hockey uh, in and out of Toronto and looking at what has happened with some cases when children have uh, been the victims of racial taunts and how the league has handled it. And trying, again, this is a, in the case of the GTHL, it's a $10 million a year business. And 
these people who run the league need to be held accountable for how they do it. Uh, they say hockey is a safe place for, is a safe sport for everyone. A rink should be a safe place. Those words are great. Policies are okay. You can have a million policies, but if you don't follow them, what good are they? And so this is our job as media. It's my job as a reporter. It's your job as podcast people to find ways to hold powerful people to account for what they're doing. I love that. We had just a little bit ago, we had uh, Brock McGillis on the show as well to talk about uh, the intolerances that he's faced through his uh, hockey career and and even since as an advocate for uh, the LGBTQ plus community uh, and just kind of hearing uh, his thoughts on how we can change that because one of the things that here at Area 51 we've we've talked a lot about is is trying to find ways to to contribute our little bit towards hockey truly being for everyone and not just being a, a slogan. And uh, I thought that a lot of the suggestions that he had were were wonderful just around educating. Um, did you have you found just kind of in your journalism and, and your research and your stories anything kind of similar as far as like anti-racism or any proposed plans for educating and, and not just punishing. I think everybody's just expecting punishments, but educating is really the ultimate way. I don't know if this answers your question exactly, but kind of where I, where I'm looking now is again, still with accountability. Uh, JT Brown three years ago held up his fist before a game in sunrise, Florida, before a lightning game against uh, Florida Panthers. And in the days after, Gary Bettman was asked about his position on player protests at games. And I'm going to paraphrase him. He said something along the lines of, people don't come to the game for that. Well, it's been three years, and the world's a different place now, let's hope. And we've seen the NHL retweet and come up with a ton of, you know, many, many statements. And statements are important, and, and that's great. But put your money where your mouth is. You know, the NBA has talked about having Black Lives Matter, the slogan on its court. Again, this is not, doesn't matter how many players of color are in the NHL. This is a human rights issue, right? The NBA is allowing players to have political slogans on the back of their jerseys during games. What's the NHL doing? Why are they not being asked this? Why are they, why is the NHL not being forthright with whether it will support players if they want to make political statements like kneeling on the ice or holding up a fist on the bench before a game. Where is that message? Yeah, that's, that's a good point. It's kind of one of the only, well, if not the only of the big four uh, sports leagues that doesn't really have any of that, you know, like NFL players, MLB players, uh, NBA players, they all know how to use their platforms and they're encouraged to do so in, in most cases. I mean, there are obviously the Colin Kaepernick situation and, and others where they're not uh, encouraged or strongly discouraged. Uh, but the NHL, like I, I remember that JT Brown game when he lifted up his fist and and kind of the after effects of that and that he was ultimately told not to do that anymore and that that just didn't belong. And 
it's, it's kind of, it's shocking, I guess, more so now seeing how the world has, has changed and people have become more aware and, um, and more, uh, I guess, more advocating for that change uh, and, and wanting that change and wanting players to use their, their voice and not shut up and dribble and, and using their platforms for a positive uh, a change in the world. And to kind of look back at situations like that and think that was a real, that was a big swing and a miss by the NHL, real opportunity for them to allow players to, to do this before all of this happened. I think part of the issue, and I've tried to reconcile myself, like what's happening? Why is hockey different that way? And part of it is this phrase, hockey culture. Um, It is a different sport. Um, You know, what other sport do kids go away at 15 or or 16 years old from their families? Uh, And, you know, to pursue their dreams, of course. But, you know, you go into an NHL locker room, and these guys, they all look the same, same haircuts, same suits, same tattoo sleeve on one arm, you know, usually, same haircuts, same toques. They're all walking into the games with like the, you know, am I wrong? No, you're, you're dead on. <laughs> they wear, the, they wear the, the slides and the, the you know, sports socks and, and shorts before games. This is not a sport like the NBA that celebrates personality. In fact, it does exactly the opposite of that. It criticizes players like P.K. Subban for having a personality. And and that's completely backward because ultimately the NHL and all of its players will make more money if they do celebrate personality because more people will watch. But it's just they're so, they're so locked into this thinking of, you know, that was promoted by Don Sherry and other hockey traditionalists for so many years. You know, celebrate the name on the front of your jersey, not the one on the back. And the concept of teamwork is important. And there's a million good lessons there. But it's also okay to be an individual. And, you know, I hope that the NHL can figure out and minor hockey and every league in between can figure out how to encourage players to be more comfortable in their own skin, to be themselves and to be able to express who they are. I totally agree. That's something that I think you hit the nail on the head. That's something that has stuck out to me kind of over the last few years, but especially in the last few months. Um, you don't hear athletes in any other sports say with as much regularity as NHL athletes do. I don't want to be a distraction in the dressing room or I don't want to be a distraction. I was reading Sean Shapiro's story about Stephen Johns and his, um, his concussion issues over the last few years and how he would go to the rink and he would go out of his way to avoid his teammates, to not be a distraction. And you know, I think that's something that really has to change in the hockey culture. This idea that you can't, you can't even express to the guys who you say are your brothers and the people you spend more time with that you're really struggling and having serious mental health issues like Stephen Johns shared and not being able to tell people that you see day in, day out because you think you're going to be a distraction to them for playing hockey. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, kind yeah. of... Shifting topics a bit, 
uh, one of the things you talked about was the NHL not returning your calls and, you know, their, their tendency to put the game and using the players for profit over safety. Um, and you, I know you've done a few stories in the last few weeks about return to play and the dangers of COVID. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the epidemiologists you've talked to and kind of their thoughts on the issue? Sure. Um, you know, I, in, and I, I remember back in mid-February, I don't remember when it was that, we, that I was last in TSN in the building on the set, but we had a doctor named Andrew Morris, who's an infectious disease specialist. And he came on with Gino Retta and I, and I can remember him saying on TV, just how bad he thought this was going to be. And he said, at the end of the day, we are going to know someone who dies of COVID or we're going to know someone who knows someone who dies of COVID. And, you know, we immediately, the reaction on social media was that this guy was fear mongering and there was no way that the virus was going to spread as far and wide as it has. Again, remember back in February, the, we're still at a point when the US president is talking about how this was going to disappear as soon as the warmer weather hit. And, uh, and you know, how much has changed since then? And so what I've done is, and again, I've had the luxury of working for CTV National as well, is just tried to build up a roster of, you know, a half dozen or so specialists who have talked to me about what they see um, in the, you know, day-to-day -day in their jobs and how worried they are and what their perspective is. So, you know, Alan Drummond is the head of the Canadian Association of Emergency Room Physicians, and I got to know him pretty early. And Mike Silverman is a doctor in London, Ontario, who manages infectious disease as well. And, uh, you know, I'm, and I'm trying just to, like you guys, there's a million questions that we're trying to answer. And so I'll you know, when we find out, for instance, that the Blue Jays want to have games in Toronto this summer, and how's that going to work? You know, are the Tampa is a hot zone right now. So are we just to expect that the team from Tampa is going to come into Toronto without a 14-day quarantine that everyone else faces when they travel here and then leave? How, you know, is it okay for professional athletes to have different rules than the rest of society? That's you know basically this is the the line of thinking that I'm going down and, and asking questions and you know in fact I was at a I was at a get together on the weekend and a friend actually challenged me and I'd love to know what you guys think about this his perspective was that the Canadian media has failed has failed the the public because we're too nice we're too caught up in being civil you know Prime Minister Trudeau has his daily press briefings and so do many of the premiers and chief medical officers. And we ask our questions. And when our politicians are deflecting or not answering, we go on to the next question. And my friend was pointing out that if we lived in a country like the United Kingdom, the press there is far more aggressive with the governments and demands transparency. And I don't know, what do you think? Is that is that a fair is that a fair criticism? Should we as media be doing you know, a different handling, you know, asking questions in a different way? Should we be more aggressive than we're seeing? 
I think it kind of feeds the the old Canadian stereotype that we we want to be seen as as very polite and the nicest people and and I never really thought about it like, like that before but yeah I think that that is a disservice at the end of the day because you're not getting the answers that you're you're even looking for right if you ask a question they deflect or they kind of shrug it off and move on you you haven't gotten anything out of that um, what's even the point in asking the question if you're not going to follow up or try to get the answer that you're looking for so I, I think a lot of it I, I think probably goes back to that stereotype that we have this Canadian image of, of what uh, we are like and that we're very kind and polite and we don't we don't push anything uh, but at the end of the day it ends up being a disservice for that particular industry. I think there's some merit to that. I think, um, I do think that as much as the British press holds their government to account, there are also a lot of, you know, they've had way more ethical issues in terms of privacy and other, other kinds of issues that Canadian press maybe don't necessarily have, but there's probably some middle ground to be reached there. Admittedly, I think on COVID it's been, it's been a little bit different in BC because I think John Horgan's done very little of the talking and Adrian Dix has maybe done a bit more, but I thought one of the best decisions that the BC government made was actually just letting Bonnie Henry answer most of the questions, um, which mm -hmm. just, it felt less political and partisan in that sense. So, but maybe that's also, maybe I have a false sense of security because of that, but it, it, seemed, it seemed to me that the message was communicated better taking it out of the hands of a partisan person. What, why do you think, you know, when, when Vancouver was still a candidate to become a hub city in, for the NHL, how did people in BC feel about that? Was there excitement? And if so, why, given that you couldn't go to any of the games? Honestly, there wasn't a lot of excitement. I think uh, from what I've seen anyways, and maybe Sam seen different, but I saw kind of an overwhelming sense of we don't want it here. Uh, we've worked this hard to keep it away um, and to keep our numbers down. And why should somebody else be an exception to the rule? We won't get to see the games anyways. And uh, I mean, I think deep down in a lot of ways, we all want hockey back because it's a, a some sort of, of normalcy, which we haven't had in a long time. But if it's at the, the cost of player safety and public safety, why? And I think uh, it comes back to how Dr. Bonnie Henry's done um, in, in giving us each day just kind of this information and being able to, uh, to, to kind of get everybody all on the same page. And that's probably why BC has done as well as it has. Uh, as far as keeping uh, the curve down and flattened uh, for COVID. But uh, I haven't seen a lot of people actually wanting the hub city to be in Vancouver. When when uh, Gary Bettman and the NHL were told to move on, everybody that I saw was kind of like, oh, kick rocks. <laughs> like we, we didn't want you here anyways. <laughs> I think there was a little bit of excitement, but even the people who were excited, almost everyone I saw basically said, if Bonnie Henry says it's safe and she has, she gives them the okay, that's fine. 
And if she says no, then it's a no. There's been almost a universal level of trust put in her, which is pretty impressive. I haven't really seen that anywhere else. Extremely rare. Hmm. Yeah. That's a good well, question. I haven't really thought about it like that. What were what was your response to your friend? Well, I'm trying to, you know, I, I don't necessarily agree with him. I know a lot of reporters who I think have done a really good job. But I also want to be, I, I would hope that I could say this about myself, that if somebody presents me with a different viewpoint, that I'd, I'd at least be open-minded enough to try to see where they're coming from with it. And maybe mm-hmm. there are instances where we could be more aggressive. I, I remember one of the stories I've covered for CTV National was about how in Southern Ontario, the, you know, the breadbasket of the province, the agriculture um, sector, they, there was, I guess about three months ago now, there was planning uh, for bringing migrant workers into the country. And so the mayor in Norfolk County came up with this concept, this plan, uh, that as the migrant workers would arrive, each of them would be isolated in a hotel room for two weeks uh, before they went to the farms. And they'd be fed, meals would be brought to them. And it would cost each of the farms $1,800 per worker. And that's, you know, not an insignificant amount of money. So they were going to tack it onto the property taxes. The, the, the municipality would pay for it this year and next year it would be added onto your taxes. And the, the blowback from farmers was immediate. You know, they, we, we can't imagine paying this much money for this. And so what happened? Where did the Ontario government land on this? Well, you can probably guess um, the farmers were supported. The plan was tossed out. The migrant workers arrived in Canada uh, and in Southern Ontario specifically. None were tested when they arrived. And now we have, of all the cases in Ontario, you know, the vast majority of them, and I don't have the numbers offhand, but, you know, if they're not in long-term care facilities, the migrant, it's a, it's a shame. It's scandalous what's happened on these farms where workers are being kept in dormitories. So, Coming back to the question, you know, could the media be more aggressive? It's not too late. Like Doug Ford today was asked about this, the Premier of Ontario, and talked about what great work the farmers are doing, you know, trying to help manage this outbreak and do the best as they can for migrant farmers. Well, you know, three of them have already died in our province. Is that acceptable? We knew what had to be done three months ago. Municipalities came up with a plan for this. And it was kicked to the curb because it was costing money. So I think one of my jobs and the responsibility I have is to try to get some answers to that question about what happened and who within the municipal, the provincial government was convinced that this idea of quarantining workers was not a good thing. Yeah. That's a beautiful story. Um, Well, we've taken up a lot of your evening and I know you're, out of your cabin or your cottage, as you call it in Ontario, not your cabin. Um, so we don't want to keep you any longer. We'll do. We like to end our segments with a quick shootout round of just rapid fire questions. Okay. Do you Shoot want to away. do genre? Okay. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Uh, so first one here, we have a listener that asks us every time. So now I just do it without them having to. Uh, what is your go-to pizza? What is your favorite Hawaiian. pizza? Hawaiian. Sorry. Hawaiian? Oh, awesome. 
uh, pineapple and pizza guy. Uh, what is your favorite drink? Like if you were to indulge in, in any sort of drink. Uh, I've been drinking a lot of lemonade this summer. I love lemonade. Yeah. Yeah. Especially on a hot day. It's hard to top that. Yeah. Uh, what is your favorite TV show of all time? Uh, the Wire. Ooh, good one. That's our I don't second, think I've heard that second, one yet. No, that's our second one in a row. We got, we got that. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, a lot of love for The Wire. That's good. Uh, what is your favorite song? If you had to pick one, that's a tough one. I don't have a favorite song. I've been listening to a lot of Zach Brown Band lately. I think that guy is a genius in his band. Yeah. I love Zach Brown Band. That's a great choice. That, that music goes really good at the cottage. <laughs> okay. yeah. uh, what is your favorite podcast? Uh, Durbano? I don't know. No, I, I don't know. Again, I'm not, this is, I don't, I, I listen to The Daily with Michael Barbaro at the New York Times uh, pretty often. Um, but I would not say that I'm a pod, a regular podcast listener yet. Um, still coming around on it. I'm still listening to live radio and, and you know, and, and music if I'm out for a run or for a bike ride. Yeah, we'll fix that. We'll, we'll bring you into the podcast world. <laughs> we're, all, we're, all, we're all imperfect. We're all works in progress. Right? So. <laughs> That's right. Uh, last one here is one thing that we don't know about you. What is one thing we don't know about you? Hmm. When, okay. I was going to give you one, but I'm not giving you that one. <laughs> Um, no, I will. I will. So when I finished high school, my parent, I wanted, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to go to university. And my parents thought it would be a really good idea if I went to Bible college for a year first. So I said, sure, that sounds like a great idea. And I went to Edmonton to a Bible college. And I would have been expelled if I hadn't quit at Christmas. And the, la- what the, 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 the event where it became crystal clear that this was not for me is when somebody tried to teach me how to ride a motorcycle and I popped the clutch on it and drove it through the doors of the gymnasium dur- during a girls volleyball tournament and the mus- motor- motorbike kind of skidded out. So, you know, I don't know, maybe if things had worked out differently, I wouldn't be a journalist. I'd be in, you know, I would have gone to seminary school or something. Who knows? Well, I, for one, am very glad that it didn't work out because you would have deprived us all of your stories. Very kind of you guys. Thank you so much. Thanks Thanks for joining us, Rick. All right. You take care. From Sean Warren and the Area 51 podcast, thank you for listening. And please like, share, and follow along as we continue to grow. Join in the conversation on social media. We also now have new merchandise available on our own website. You can find it there on shop.spreadshirt.ca backslash area 51 hockey podcast, and you can grab some great merch. Thanks again, and stay tuned for the next episode of the area 51 hockey podcast. Cheers.